ladies this morning. If you have a Bible, you can open to Romans 13. Pastor Ben has reminded me this is the time in which our children are leaving to go to Kids Praise. And so they are going to head out. I see our children's director, Kimberly Milner, back there. So kids, you can go on. And as they go, what I would like to do is let's stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. I'm going to read for us. And we're going to pray over this time where we have the word open. We're also going to pray for our children as they go. They can go ahead and leave though, Kim. You don't have to make them wait. All right. Romans 13, verse 11 says, Besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Father God, please bless our time in your word. I pray that you would use me, an unworthy servant, for this worthy work. I pray, Father, that you would open our ears to the good truth of your word and that it would saturate, Lord, our hearts, and that we would love sin less and love you more, that we would know the time. And I pray for our children, Lord, as they go to hear your word and kids praise God, that they would hear the word, and it would not go in one ear and out the other, Lord, but that it would also uh, penetrate their hearts, Lord, and that, uh, that they would be taken captive for you, God, that their affections, their, their wills, and their desires, God, would be directed heavenward towards you, Jesus. Would you do that, God? Would you save these children? And would you raise up this generation to know the time, just as we need to know the time? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In the classic movie, Shawshank Redemption, Andy Dufresne is sitting in prison with his best friend, Red, another prisoner who's played by Morgan Freeman. And they're talking about getting out of prison. And Andy is played by Tim Robbins. He was wrongly convicted. And so Andy looks at Red. Tim Robbins looks at Morgan Freeman and says, you know, I want to get out of this place. And, And Red essentially says, listen, there's no life outside of prison. I don't even know what I would do out there. You know, in here, I I get cigarettes for people. What would I even do out there? And Andy responds with a line that is etched into Hollywood history. He says, I'm going to get busy living or get busy dying. And after that, Andy stands up and he walks away. And it's the last time that Red sees him in prison. They escape that night. Well, Andy escapes that night, and then later on, he and Red reunite on a happy beach on the coast of Mexico looking at the Pacific Ocean. If I just spoiled the movie for you, it came out in 1994. You had your time, all right? I'm sorry. I needed it for the sermon illustration. It doesn't work if they stay in prison. Andy's words were that of a man that knew it is time for action. He couldn't stay in prison another night. He couldn't bear it. He could not wake up there another morning. 
He had to try to escape. He would get busy living or get busy dying, right? You're going to live, you're going to escape and live, or you're going to die in the process. But it's time to do one of these things. And those words are pertinent for us this morning because while we might not be prisoners sitting under a wrongful conviction, we are a people who have to understand that this is a time for action. As those who are members of the redemptive kingdom of Jesus Christ, representing the Lord in the common kingdom of man, we have to understand that this is an hour which requires alertness from his people. This is not a time for us to be asleep. This is not a time for us to be distracted. This is not a time for us to be spiritually groggy. It's a time in which we as the church have to have our eyes open. And we need to have our hearts guarded. And it's a time in which our prayers need to be unhurried and often offered. This is a time for us to believe. This is a time for us to act justly. This is a time for us to be holy. So far in our series, we have seen in Romans 13, 1 through 4, the origin and the purpose of government. And we talked about how God put the state in place after the flood in Genesis 9 to restrain evil and provide a level of peace to humanity. This is the purpose of government. In week two, we looked at verses five through seven. We talked about how you and I are resident aliens. We are citizens of the redemptive kingdom of Christ because we have faith and we believe in Christ, and yet we live in the common kingdom of man where we vote in elections and we pay our taxes. Christ is Lord, we render to him that which is his. But he said from his own mouth, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, because Caesar has been put in place by the Lord. And when we subject ourselves to the authorities as Christians, we do this really as an act of obedience to God, because we know he's the one that put the magistrate in that place of authority. But that's a call for individual Christians. Nowhere in the scriptures do we see that the church as an institution is subservient to the state, nor do we see that the state is subservient to the church. They're two separate authorities with two separate purposes. Last week we talked about how we represent the kingdom of God in the common kingdom of man. And we do this by living out the second table of the Ten Commandments. The second table of the law. We fulfill the law through neighborly love. We love our neighbors as ourselves. We work for the good of the city. The city is not our home. Right? We, we've got our eyes on the new Jerusalem, but we work for the good of this city while we are in it. We preach the gospel of the new Jerusalem in Babylon until the Lord returns. We represent the gospel of the new Jerusalem in Babylon until the Lord returns with our words and with our actions. And now this morning we arrive at Romans 13, 11 through 14, this passage that calls us to wake up and to look at the time, to get out of bed Look at the clock and take action. Our text starts with Paul assuming that Christians know the time. Right? He says this. Besides this, you know the time. There are two Greek words that are used when speaking about time. One is chronos, and that is clock time, calendar time, chronological time. Thursday at 3.30 p.m., right? Next Saturday. But that is not the word that Paul uses here. The, Paul, the word that Paul uses here is kairos, which does not refer to a point in time, like you could point to on a calendar, but a quality of time. It's talking about a kind of time, 
Like if somebody, you know, yesterday I took my sons to the CNU basketball game. You come home, you know, my wife asked, did you have a good time? Right? She's asking, what was the quality of the time you experienced? And that's the sort of time Paul is talking about here. Keep reading. In verse 11, he goes on to say that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. And in verse 12, he says, the night is far gone and the day is at hand. Now we're getting clues as to what is the quality of the time that we're living in. When Paul speaks to the day in verse 12, he's talking about the day of our salvation. And the day of our salvation is a whole lot closer to us now than when we first believed. The day of our salvation is when our salvation will be consummated. We'll receive our glorified bodies. We will begin the eternal age in the presence of God Almighty. It's the day when the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. It's the day when the sixth seal will be opened. It's the day when the seventh trumpet will sound. It's the day when the seventh bowl will be poured out. It is the day of judgment when the serpent from the garden and death itself are defeated and thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. That is the day that we are talking about. And the time in which you and I live is pregnant with this day. Of course, this day will be the second coming of Jesus Christ. That will be the great day of our salvation when our salvation is consummated. And the time we live in, it is pregnant with the coming of Jesus. It's like with each passing day, the season that you and I live in is swelling. It's swelling with evil. It's swelling with birth pangs in creation, right? You see volcanoes erupting and forest fires and tidal waves and things of that nature. It's swelling with wars and rumors of wars. We've seen plenty of that this year. It is swelling with raging nations. But it's not just swelling with those things. It's also swelling with gospel proclamation. And as people believe, it's swelling with gospel belief. This time is swelling with the church's fulfillment of the Great Commission as each soul repents and trusts in Christ. And at some point, this pregnant season that we live in will give birth and the day of the Lord will come. So, number one this morning, kingdom citizens must understand the nature of the time. We must understand the nature of the time. When Paul says that the hour has come for us to wake from sleep, he's talking about the specific moment that we are living in. If I set my alarm on my phone for 7 a.m., I don't expect it to go off around 7 a.m. I expect it to go off at 7 a.m. on the hour when 6.59.59 clicks over to that 7.0.0.0.0, I expect the iPhone to make some noise. It's a specific time. And Paul is saying, the alarm is going off. The specific time has arrived. And you need to wake up. You need to wake up and you need to look at the time and recognize that with each passing day, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is getting closer and closer and closer. You and I live in the last days. People often ask pastors that. Pastor, do you think we're living in the last days? The answer is yes. Now, I know what you mean when you ask that. What you really mean is, is Jesus coming back soon? What you really mean is, are we, are we in the, the last part of the last days? I cannot answer that for you. 
But truly, this entire period of time in between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ are the last days from the point of view of Scripture. Hebrews 1 verse 2 says, But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. You see it in the prophecy of Joel that Peter points to in Acts 2, when he's talking about how the Spirit is poured out on all believers. He's talking about what's going to happen at the beginning of the last days. And he says, in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. We're in the final leg of the story of redemption. This is the age of witness, this is the age of the church, this is the age of tribulation, and at the end of this age, Christ will return. And in the in-between, we are here on his directives, following his commands, building his kingdom. The world is not doing that. In fact, the world denies all of this. The world is fast asleep in their deception, fast asleep in their depravity. They say God does not even exist. They say you are waiting like fools for this hope within you to appear. They say even if God does exist, well, he must be forgetful. He he, he must be slack concerning his promise regarding the return of his son. But we know he is not slack. He is not slow to fulfill his promise as people suggest. He is instead patiently gathering his people to himself. And not a single one of them is going to perish. And once he has saved every citizen of his kingdom to the uttermost, the day of repentance will have passed and the day of the Lord will come. The Lord is not slow, Peter says, to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Remember he's writing to the church. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So the Lord is not slow, he's not slack. Peter says, to the contrary, he is fulfilling his promise, and he will do that all the way through the events of his son's return. Because he has not just promised to save through Christ, but to judge the world through Christ. And when Jesus returns, it will be as in the days of Noah. With the people of the earth going on with their lives as if there's no accountability with God. And then judgment will come suddenly. For believers, the day of Jesus' return is not going to be a day of condemnation, but a day of consummation. It's going to be a day of glorification, and that day is drawing nearer and nearer with each passing second. People always want to know how close we are to the return of Jesus. Here's the answer, closer than ever. And tomorrow will be even closer. And that is what Paul means when he says that your salvation is nearer to you now than when you first believed. See, you have not experienced all of salvation yet, and I have not experienced all of salvation yet. You've experienced it in part. Now, that doesn't mean you're not fully saved. You are fully saved. You are signed, sealed, and delivered by the blood of Christ according to the will of the Father and by the power of the Spirit. But we know from Paul's golden chain of salvation in Romans 8... That the moment in which we believe and our sins are forgiven, that's just one part of our salvation. 
Paul says, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he uh, called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so predestination, or predestined, that be the part of your salvation where God is working in eternity past, justified, that is the legal standing you get with God upon saving faith, glorified is what's to come in the future. After a life of being sanctified by the Lord and, and, and putting away sins, we will cast off these bodies that resemble the first Adam and we will get our glorified bodies which are made in the pattern of the second Adam. And so according to Romans 8.30, God set his love on you from before time. God saved you in time and he will preserve you in his saving grace throughout time. And your life will be with him in glory. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. From eternity past to eternity future, the saving arm of the Lord acts on behalf of his people. And it's closer now than ever, the full consummation of this salvation. And as those who have experienced God's love in this way, who understand God's love in this way, who wait in faith for his son to return, and to bring about this glory, well, we must know the time. The world is lost. They don't know the time. They dismiss the teachings of the New Testament on Jesus' return, but not us. We know, church, that the days are short. We know the Lord will return at the appointed time. We know that we're living in a pregnant season, and it must be treated with urgency. When we had our first child, Katie made me pack a bag six months in. The second child, she made me pack a bag about a week beforehand. The third child, we didn't pack hardly anything. We just went for it. But what she understood was if the baby comes, it'll be urgent. And if you had seen her when she was pregnant with Beckett, there was much swelling. She was very, very pregnant. We understood we were on the last leg of the pregnancy. We understood we got to be ready at any moment. We must be ready. In light of the time we live in and the reality of Jesus' return, we are a people that must take action. And Paul describes this action to us in these verses. He says the night is far gone. The night is the age that you and I live in. It's the history that has already passed. The day is at hand. Meaning this is the final age. Christ will return. He will draw this age to a close. So what do you do when the night is gone and the day is arriving? What did you do this morning? You woke up. You're here, right? You woke up from sleep. And I'm looking around. I don't see anybody in their PJs. Praise the Lord. So that means that you woke up and you cast off the clothes of the night. Because you said these aren't fit for the day can't go walking around out in these things you cast them off you armed yourself for the day and that is the picture Paul is giving us in these verses it's very tangible it's something you have done you know hundreds and hundreds of times in your bedroom since before you can remember you wake with the dawn you cast off the clothes of the night number two kingdom citizens must understand the proper attire for the time the rags of the night that must be removed are called the works of darkness in verse 12. What are these works of darkness? 
We have them explained in verse 13, orgies and drunkenness probably refers to participation in the obscene cultural celebrations of sex and alcohol in Rome, where they would have these festivals dedicated to Bacchus, the god of the vine, uh, and people would go and they would get as drunk as possible so they could participate in the most depraved and debaucherous things without feeling remotely bad about it. They would desensitize themselves with copious amounts of alcohol so they could suppress what they knew was wrong in their conscience and, and just do what they wanted to do. In our culture, you can find these sorts of celebrations all around the world. Carnival in Brazil and Mardi Gras in New Orleans. Maybe just a Friday night in Newport News. Sexual immorality and sensuality, that's not just the participation in sexual sin, that's the love of it. Sexual immorality is the act which, by the way, this whole idea that people have a sexual identity, that if, if you are a homosexual or a lesbian or participate in transgenderism, this is your identity, the Bible has absolutely no classification for that. Sexual immorality is a behavior. And, and, and the things that you do, th these are behaviors. These are not identities. And so we got to reject that language from the world. We can't give an inch to that, church. Sexual immorality is the act. Sensuality is when you love the act. So this is adultery, and then it's the affections that get stirred up in the heart as adultery is considered and participated in. And this is everywhere we look in our culture. Our culture is sex-obsessed to the point that we have now created entire societal classes purely based on the behavior of people in bedrooms. Everything is sexualized. Freud argued that people were obsessed with sex because society repressed it. Well, nobody's repressing it now, Sigmund. And everybody's just as obsessed. And that is because the obsession has nothing to do with the repression of sex in society, but the suppression of truth in the human heart. And the Bible tells us sexual sin is actually a judgment within itself for unbelief in the heart toward God. That's Romans 1. That when you reject God and you say, I will not believe you and I will worship created things, that he gives you over to sexual sin actually as judgment for your unbelief. Quarreling and jealousy. This is covetousness and the fighting that comes from it. The quarreling and jealous heart cannot stand for somebody to look better than them. They cannot stand for somebody to outdo them in earthly stature, whether it's wealth or position or power. And then quarrels come about because of the jealousy, because of the covetousness. These works are everywhere in the common kingdom of man. You see people walking around just every day wearing the works of darkness. They are the opposite of the good works that you and I perform as dual citizens. This is the opposite of fulfilling the law of love. This is the opposite of the ideals represented by the morality in God's second table of the law. When believers go and do good works as a response to the work of salvation God has done in our lives, fulfilling the law through the second uh, table, society benefits, right? That's why Paul said in verse 10 that love does no wrong to a neighbor. God's grace is marvelous. It's gripped us. And now we owe neighborly love to the entire world, and the world benefits when Christians do that well. Things like slavery are abolished. 
But the opposite is also true. When unbelievers or believers go around breaking the Lord's neighborly commands in the second table of the law, society is impacted negatively. And that is because sin never occurs in a vacuum. It affects other people. So let's just use Paul's examples. Somebody is participating in orgies and drunkenness. Well, there's a myriad of awful things that could happen as a result from unplanned pregnancies to drunk driving accidents. I've told you that I often watch On Patrol on Peacock. I love watching law enforcement be good law enforcement. And so I'll, I'll watch that show and, and it's, um, it's always an adventure. But man, when they catch somebody who's drunk driving, you'll see these police officers say to them, you could have killed somebody. They say it every time. They look at him and say, what are you thinking? You could have killed somebody. Because they know that this sin doesn't just affect you, it affects all of us. If someone commits adultery, it doesn't just impact the two people involved. Families and friends are impacted when the inevitable fallout comes. When there is jealousy and quarrels, and, and someone is taking everything personally and reacting with a hair-trigger temper, then other people will be affected by that. They'll be hurt by that. And they'll start to mark and avoid that person or just grit their teeth as they deal with them. Sin is an earthquake. And from the epicenter, it sends out tremors that are felt. And so Paul is saying that as Christians, we can't be engaging in these things. And we can't be relaxed about it. You can't act like the day of the Lord is not at hand. We know the time. We know the night is far gone. And so we've got to take off the works of darkness. And in their place, Paul calls on believers who are awakened and alert to the time to put on the armor of light. To put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the armor of light in verse 12. The ESV chooses armor, but the Greek word is actually more often translated as weapons in the New Testament. So you could just as easily say weapons of light. And you see where he also says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 14. To put on the Lord Jesus Christ is to rightly position King Jesus in your life. It's to place yourself under his lordship and say, Christ is God, Christ is master. I intend to do what he says at all times. And these two things go hand in hand. If you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will bear the armor of light. If you bear the weapons of light, you will put on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you give yourself up to God as a living sacrifice, if you honor Christ as Lord, representing him in the common kingdom of man every day, by default, you're going to be bearing the weapons of light. It's the only way to fight the good fight. It's the only way to chase holiness like a bloodhound. It's the only way to love your enemies. Kingdom citizens bear kingdom weapons because they have been given to them by the Lord Jesus. And as those who have given themselves up to the daily service of the Lord Jesus, what other weapons will be used? We're not going to look at the arsenal he's given us and say, eh, I think I'll opt for something else. No, we must use these weapons. So what are these weapons of light? What is this armor that Paul's talking about? Well, the answer is actually pretty robust. There's three New Testament passages that speak about these weapons. And I'm going to start with the most famous one. Ephesians 6, verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness... And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith 
with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. In John Bunyan's classic, The Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, who's the main character, he's on his way to the celestial kingdom, he gets armor, and it's the Ephesians 6 armor, and he becomes concerned about what it does not cover. He's in a showdown with the devil, he's in a showdown with Apollyon, and it gets pretty hairy. If you read, if you read the, uh, the Pilgrim's Progress, at one point he's like on his back and Apollyon's about to take him out, and so he's in this fight. And as he's about to start the fight, Christian gets scared. He says, Christian then began to fear and consider in his mind whether to go back or stand his ground. He considered again that he has no armor for his back. And he thought, therefore, that turning his back to him might give Apollyon a greater advantage and allow the fiend to pierce him with the arrows. Is it possible that the back is not mentioned in Ephesians 6 because the Christian life is not meant to be one of retreat? That's what Bunyan's getting at, isn't it? It's, it's one where we move forward and we fight sin. There's no retreat. Sin must be slain. Shorter passage can be found in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a, a helmet the hope of salvation. Very similar to Ephesians 6. And then we have Paul's words to the Colossians in Colossians 3.5, where he says, Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It's very similar to Romans 13, right? Those are the works of darkness. They must be cast off. Put them to death. Mortify them. More are listed in verses 9-10. through 10. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And in their place, Paul says that believers should put on certain clothing as those that are chosen by God. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. So, so this is what we wear instead of the old self. Instead of the old self, we wear compassionate hearts, kindness, Humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now those are three passages that we can lay up alongside Romans 13 to understand what the weapons of light are, but I'm going to go back and just list them all out in bullet point fashion because I want you to know your arsenal. You ever seen a James Bond movie? And before, you know, about halfway through the movie, before Bond really embarks on the most important mission, 
he gets taken into a little room and they show him all the new technology that he can use, right? Just, just blow on this pen and it'll blow up a small nation, right? And so they show him all, you know, here's your new card, your new pen, and here's your new glasses, new shoes, all these things and all the little things that they do. And of course, you know, I'll see all this play out in the next 45 minutes and he will stand tall at the end, right? You know how it's going to work out. But they show Bond his arsenal. Well, God has given us an arsenal. He has put it at our disposal. And so I'm going to bring you in the little room and show you the weapons that God has put in your hand to fight your lust and to fight porn and to fight gossip and to fight slander and fight jealousy and fight sinful anger and fight Apollyon and stand against his schemes and to be able to withstand in the evil day. Church, he has given us his truth his truth, which are like beams from his very being. His truth is given to us as a belt. His righteousness is a breastplate to protect the heart. The gospel of peace is shoes for our feet. The shield of faith which extinguishes the flaming darts of the devil. Our salvation, which we wear like a helmet, which we all know, you go to ride a bike, right? you got to put your helmet on because if your head gets hurt, it could be a fatal blow. So our salvation protects us from the fatal blow of the second death. We've been given the sweet, life-giving, faith-rending, living, active, sufficient sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the Word of Christ is to dwell in us richly. The ministry of prayer is a weapon. And Jesus' blood allows you and permits you and encourages you to boldly engage in it. But it doesn't stop there. The other weapons of light we have, looking at the other passages, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, and meekness, patience, so we can bear with one another in love and forgive one another and stop holding on to silly grudges. The peace of Christ to rule in our hearts He's given us psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to sing with thanksgiving in our hearts towards God. And you know what that means? That means that what we do in this room and what we do in the Family Life Center and what we do at our hymn sings and what we do anytime we gather and we sing to God, it is warfare. When we, in just a few minutes, we're going to stand up here and we're going to sing another song together. It is warfare. We are bearing the weapons of light. And above all these things, as we talked about last week, he has given us our badge of distinction. He has given us love, which binds everything together. We live in a heavy metal world. And when we do not love, your Christian life sounds just fine in that world. Because it's a symbol, it's a gong, right? We ought to stand out in this heavy metal world Our loving lives should sound like a perfectly tuned Stradivarius violin. That one was for my loving wife. And then we have love also listed as a breastplate in 1 Thessalonians 5. So there are your weapons of warfare, church. As those who know the time and as those who understand the day that is at hand, we've got to wake up and we've got to use these weapons every day in this world. 
We must cast off the works of darkness and we must put on the Lord Jesus Christ and bear our armor in the common kingdom of man as the king's ambassadors. But if we're going to do this, then we must be serious about the issue of seeing sin put to death. The works of darkness are not cast off by accident. They're sins to be repented of. They are rebellious habits that must be put in the grave. They are witness-harming actions that must be mortified and killed off. Sin must die. It belongs to the darkness and we are people of the light. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. He said, because Christians have been washed, they must keep themselves clean. And the way this happens is through starvation. Not of your physical body, but of your spiritual flesh. You need to starve your flesh. You need to make no provision for your flesh. Your flesh is like a gremlin. Right? That, that, that movie's about to come. It's Christmas time. People will be watching it. I, I do hold that it is a Christmas film. You can't feed a gremlin after midnight or it'll turn into a monster, skateboard down the street, you know, blowing up the local electronics store. And our flesh is the same way. You cannot give it an opportunity to eat, an opportunity to gratify its desires. Romans 8.13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will, what? You will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Your flesh is longing for your old life, the life you had before you put on the Lord Jesus. Your flesh longs for the night, so you need to starve it out. Listen, I'm going to go to this one first because I've had to walk through this in my own sanctification. Men, are you sick of being unrighteously angry while watching your sports team? Let's go there. We chuckle, but what's it like when you turn that game off and your temperature is so high you can't speak cordially to anybody for the rest of the afternoon? That's sinful. It's not cute, it's not funny. And I had to see that look in my own wife's eye enough times to go, yeah, this needs to stop. And so now when I'm in the second quarter and I can tell that these fools called the commanders simply don't have it today, which is most of the days, I walk away, man. It's like I'm not going to sit here for the next two hours and just let my emotions be be carried all over the place by 22 dudes playing up in Landover, Maryland, don't give a rip about me. i got to walk away from this because my spiritual peace is more important than this football team. Hello, are you tired of not reading your Bible in the morning? Then set your alarm earlier. Change your habit. Put your phone across the room so you can't hit snooze. Change it. Don't give your flesh the out. Are you tired of looking at porn? Then you need to stop scrolling Instagram on your phone at 11 p.m. It's not going to end well. Every time, it's not going to work out. Are you sick of overeating? you got to bring less to the table. Are you sick of speaking harshly to people? Stop talking so much. Are you sick of being angry? Stop believing the lie that you're entitled to whatever it is you think you're entitled to. If you go swimming in shark tanks and you wonder why you come out missing limbs, you've got to stop and take stock of your decision making. There are a lot of sins in our lives that are there because we are lazy and we are groggy and we are spiritually sleepy and we can't be that way. We're not unbelievers sleepwalking through this age as if this life is all that there is. We know the day is close and we've got to live like it. 
If we are bearing the weapons of light and we are fighting our spiritual fight against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness, then our lives must look different than the world. And that is why Paul says in verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime. He's saying, church, you've woken up from your groggy sleep that you may have started to slip into. You've picked up the weapons of light. You're starving out your sin. You're putting it to death. If these things are true, your lifestyle is going to reflect it. You'll be able to tell in how you walk. When he says walk, that same Greek word often translates to practice or behavior. He's talking about our lifestyle. So number three, kingdom citizens must understand the distinction needed for the time. We cannot look and act like the world. There's got to be a difference between those who belong to the redemptive kingdom of God and live in the common kingdom of man and those who simply belong to the common kingdom of man. Unbelievers live here. They call this home. They deny the time. They deny the Lord's promise. They deny accountability. They live as if there is no judgment day to come. The here and now is all there is. It's all under the sun. But we look to heaven where Christ is, seated, and we long for the day when he will come back. And we do this because his spirit has worked faith in our hearts and we have been born again and we have been given a new nature and as new creations in Christ, our wills have been freed from the slavery of sin and we are liberated then to pick up the weapons of light and to fight the darkness. And we do this on our mission to bring others out of the night and to show them how to put on the Lord Jesus and follow him. To show them the way home to the new Jerusalem. And so our lives cannot look the same as those that we are trying to rescue. In a grumbling and complaining world, we should stand out as those who sparkle with contentment in Jesus Christ and an expectation of his coming. Philippians 2 verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Those who walk in the daytime should stand out against those who walk in the night. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. Next week we ride into the Psalms for Advent season. That'll be a joy. And then in January, Lord willing, we'll come back to the book of Acts. But for today, as they come back up, I want to speak to you and tell you that I think the next year is going to test our mettle on these things that we're talking about here. One election season has passed. Now we get to the big daddy, right? We get to the presidential cycle. Looks like we're getting round three of a Donald J. Trump campaign and round two of a Joe Biden campaign. Those things could change, but that's the way it looks today in the polls. These are not unimportant things. Because as we said last week, as believers, we work for the good of the city that we are in. We don't just sit here and watch the world burn. We're dual citizens, and we need to fulfill the law of love. And so we care about what happens in the world. But I just want to call on you as we wrap up this series, understanding what government is, understanding our role in society. I want to call on you to not forget the Bible this year. To not forget the scriptures. To not forget what they have told you. That the sword of government is here to restrain evil. Provide us with a certain level of peace. But it is not the answer for the ills of this world. It can't fix everything. Donald Trump will tell you he can fix everything. 
but he cannot make the world great again. And Joe Biden will tell you he can fix everything, but he cannot build it back better. The mission of the church is to make disciples of all nations by the authority of Christ, baptizing them in the name of the triune God and teaching all of his glorious commands to them. This is our purpose. And as ambassadors, we show this world love by living out neighborly commands as God calls us to and all the different contexts he has us in in our lives. And we're going to be seeking to do this faithfully, and this election temperature is going to get turned up. And there is going to be a temptation this year for us to act like the world in the midst of this cycle. To rip apart people that disagree with us. To act as if this election is the most important thing in the history of the earth. It's not, and it won't be close. To set aside our Christian duties because we have become idolatrous in following men on campaign trails. There will be a temptation to fall asleep this year and to take our mind off the things above, to sit in front of our TVs and listen to Tucker Carlson and Rachel Maddow spew their nonsense and to to fall into despair. And what I'm saying is we can't be like the world. Don't buy the lie. Don't ignore the alarm. The day is at hand. You need to live like a kingdom citizen. Your hope is in no man to run this country. Your hope's not even in this country. We look to the new Jerusalem. We work for the good of the city while we're in it. But our mission is to make disciples. And we let nothing get in the way of that. And we let nothing steal from the glory of King Jesus. Certainly not political idolatry. Recognize the time. Stay alert. Stay awake. Cast off the works of darkness. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And bear the armor of light. Father God... It's not that elections aren't important, but we know that ultimately you're the one that decides them. You're the one that has sovereign decrees and you are the one who sees to it that your will comes to pass. And we can fret and we can wring our hands. We could even go knock on doors and and, and try to get people to vote our way. But Father... At the end of the day, you're the one who sets kings and presidents and governors in their positions, and you're the one that removes them. While these are not unimportant things, Lord, they are not the most important thing. We know, as kingdom citizens, the most important thing is your worship and your lordship. And we know that all the nations of this earth are ultimately going to become the kingdom of the Son. So don't let us fall short in looking to men and women to fix our problems or to fix the world's problems when we know we have the solution to the world's biggest problem. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let everything that we do, our political activity, coaching little league teams, sitting down at the dinner table tonight reminding our family of the gospel. Let everything we do be to that end to make more disciples for Jesus and to glorify King Jesus until he comes back. And don't let us get distracted with things that are less valuable, that are less than. Don't let us get distracted with stuff that's purely under the sun. We know better. We know the time. And certainly, Lord, 
as we are reacting to this election season and we're reacting to the vitriol that we're certain to hear from both sides, don't let us act like them. Because then they won't be able to tell us apart from those who walk in the night and those who walk in the day. We have to be distinct. So Lord, make us distinct. Set us apart this year. And of all the election cycles that have come before in this country, let this be the one where the church has the most prophetic witness. It's just real clear who we follow and what we're about. Help us keep our focus and stay alert, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.